Welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. Today we have a special guest with us, uh, Michael Noss. Uh, he's a big, I'll say he's, he's big into algorithmic, algorithmic trading and a consultant for trade ideas. So welcome mm -hmm. to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's nice meeting you guys. Nice to meet you too. We're really excited that you came on. Um, you bring, I think, a very different perspective to trading than anyone else that we've had on so far. Um, we've had some discretionary traders on, but you are actually an algorithmic trader. You actually build your own algorithms. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And whether or not I then enter discretionarily or not, um, my philosophy is to, is to stack different types of analysis on top of each other. And that's where I kind of think my edge is. So uh, every trade that I, I make now from a couple of years back to today is always based on some sort of um, statistical inference. So I come up with an idea and I say this idea is, um, you know, this, this particular technical pattern or, or what have you. And I, I know that there's an edge and then whether or not I have that completely taken care of for me or whether I go in and, and manipulate it or do it myself, at least my, uh, my starting point is always from from an algorithm or statistics or something like that. So, Okay, awesome. Well, one thing we always like to start with on this show, because we really like to get to know the person behind the trades, is you know, give us a start. How, what was your first interaction with the markets? So I started way back in, jeez, uh, every time I tell this story, I have to go back further and further, um, and it just makes me feel older and older. But um, it was about 2000. 2007 um, I was still in university I was taking a finance degree I thought like everyone in finance degree the way to do it was you know you'd be an investment advisor or something like that and then I went to a job fair one day and there was a prop firm and and back then before the computerization of the market there was still a big industry to have people you know scalp like basically what you would think of HFT trading now right you're you're buying and you're trying to sell a couple cents later and you're doing it on 10,000 shares over and over and over again. Um, and I, I did that for a while. They, it was a hilarious interview process where he just told me how much, asked me how much I liked video games. And when I said I liked video games, it was like, come on in. That was, that was the only <laughs> requirement because everything was done with the keyboard and um, it was all fast paced type of thing. And I did that for uh, a few years until that, kind of the computers came in and, and destroyed more or less that that game of the the hyper scalper trading you know hundred hundreds of times a day themselves um, and that actually leads me to you know how I found trade ideas is I started using them even back then so my first um, purchase of a trade idea subscription started in 2006 um, so I've been with them for for a while. And yeah, so I didn't really always, and that's what a lot of people wonder with me if I started out as the algorithmic mathematical side, but really in those days in the prop firm, it was anything, but it was really unsophisticated. It was, you sat down next to someone who showed you a, a technique that they use that made money. And then you just kind of sat down as a, as another monkey on a typewriter and just said, do the same thing that, that we're doing here. So you mentioned video games. I know Brian's a bit more into video games than I am, but what type of video games were you playing before this? I mean, was it just, were you, were you playing some Mario Kart or were you a serious uh, gamer? I was pretty serious into StarCraft uh, back in the day. And that's what I think really sold me. Um, 
for the the listeners, I guess, who don't know, and I saw you nod in your head, so I think you might have played some back in your day. Um, but it's it's a imagine a game of chess that happens in real time where you can't see the opponent's side of the board. So a lot of it is is thinking on your feet. It's being able to react to things that you see quickly. Um, it requires uh, a lot of keyboard skill, less than you know a shooter that you're pointing and shooting. It requires a lot of uh, keyboard skills. So they loved that at the prop firm. Um, and we hired a lot of people that were into these types of games because it translated well to that style of strategy, which is I'm gonna, I'm gonna come up with an idea and I need to implement that idea quickly, and then I need to change that idea on the fly based off what I'm seeing. So they were able to kind of translate that into, um, okay, you'll be a good trader. So I'll, I'll just give a side story. I, I sure. played a lot of chess in high school, and then I also actually played a lot of StarCraft in college, and it's actually mm-hmm. like the president of the StarCraft club, and I don't know how much of nice. the professional scene of StarCraft you watch, but there's this guy named Day9 and Tasteless, and they went Love to the same you. high school as me, the same oh, year really? too. So I became friends with them, didn't know they would ever become famous, but if you guys are everyone to watch starcraft these are like i mean day nine he does a lot of other video games as well but they're mm. it just it shows you like sometimes the passions you have early in life they can translate into other you know job professions or other skills you know you can use later in life well and that's that's funny because i actually i used to watch day nine all the time so much that my wife actually if i told her the name she would know it um but i actually quote him a lot when i'm talking and i i do a lot of mentoring of of traders one-on-one and things, and I quote him a lot. And he had a quote that I love: that um, a strategy is not complete when nothing else can be added, but nothing else can be taken away. And that's one thing that I've actually—it's weird because it has nothing to do with it, but it's this parallel from video games that I was able to then take into my trading career, and it's something that I kind of implement on a on a daily basis, which is you know funny how how nerd things can help out when when they're not supposed to, I guess. Yeah, it just for people listening, so Day9 is one of these very top, he was a really good StarCraft player in the early days of StarCraft and then went on to commentating, but he, he was actually ended up being a math major at Harvey Mudd and actually got a master's in math. So it's actually, he's a really intelligent guy, like really, I would say high IQ. He took all the AP classes and, mm-hmm. you know, but, but took, took very seriously the game as well. And then his brother, also a very top StarCraft player, is actually kind of a different kind of character, much more like didn't, would always show up to school late, you know, not school, school late, but like tired because he'd been playing video games all night, didn't take academics as seriously, but also kind of had that also mindset when he went for that particular thing. He, I guess he was more maybe artistically minded, maybe not more mathematically minded, but um, it's just a way that you can like, I guess, look at problems and solve problems. And I think you're right. Starcraft is a great analogy for the market, I think, of executing strategies and, and uh, maybe having, um, you know, approaching a problem and trying to solve it. So, well, and it, yeah, it's, it's adapting the strategy, not to get too far into it for the people who haven't played the game, but think of it like chess where you have your opening moves, right? You've got your generic, I can do this, 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 or this, but as the opponent changes, you get more information and you have to adapt. And that's really what I took to trading where it's like, okay, I'm going to have my strategies and these are the strategies I'm going to employ and I'm going to back test them and I'm going to make sure that everything works. But when a new piece of information comes in that maybe wasn't there when I built the strategy, I have to adapt and change quickly. And that was um, the, the biggest parallel that I would take going forward. Now, I think back then they just liked that, you know, you'd have to click on the keyboard quite a bit. And, and uh, back in those days, they didn't even give you, you didn't have a chart or a mouse for your first three months as a trader. It was just a level two and a keyboard and all of the orders were entered in and out and they just wanted to teach you for the first couple months how to send 
it was to the point where we would time ourselves for a game and I could send um, 10 orders and I think two seconds was the, the fastest that, so it was really crazy kind of trading, but. High actions per minute right there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. that, that is high yeah. frequency trading. <laughs> well, that's, and that's what for, we were, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's what the game was until the real high frequency traders came in. And that's why I ended up um, stopping at this firm because uh, my natural inclination was this isn't working, move on, do something else. And when I tried to bring in new strategies and, and you know, possibly swing trading and long-term holds, they were like, no, that's not what we do here. We you know, look for a large bid and bid in front of it and try to scalp out a couple cents higher. And I'm like, well, you know, in, in the days where an algorithm can take that big bid in, in a, a microsecond, um, and, you know, flash out all these orders and, and things like that. And it's why I continue to do it. So, um, yeah, they weren't really, you know, happy to adapt in that way. But so is, is that prop firm, are they still in existence or did they end up uh, disappearing? They ended up closing up? And, they, and they reopened, I think, later, maybe after learning their lessons. Um, and, and I think they're still going now, but they did have a period of time where they just didn't, didn't exist anymore. So I guess, you know, if we want to continue to go down my life's path um, is after that, when that one closed, I actually got a, a real job at a uh, um, hedge fund. So I, I basically worked um, not with the hedge funds themselves, but this was around the time of Bernie Madoff where uh, everyone got fleeced with that. So there was a higher level of scrutiny of, I, I want to invest in this fund. Let's go down. So we kind of built a company where it was a team of accountants and lawyers and myself from the, the trading side of things. And we would go to the hedge fund and say, you know, this is what they're doing. This is how they're making their money. Um, you know, we've done the books, we've done the legal stuff. They look legit. And here's where your risks would be if you invested. So uh, it was great to go from, you know, the, the super hyper gambler, uh, crazy part of the world over to the hedge fund space where everything was bigger and slower, but it, you could see the contrast and the money being made uh, from one side to the other, right? There was, you know, I was um, in university, so I would trade the open and I would literally run from the trading offices to university, go to my classes and then run back to, uh, to study the markets at night. And then to go into this place where these guys would show up and sit in their fancy suits and kick their feet up and, you know, were making double to triple what I was making at, at my height. Um, and did that for, for 10 years until we got that company purchased and then came back and started uh, trading for myself again and doing some consulting with trade ideas and mentoring traders and that kind of stuff. But it was really that hedge fund space that got me into the algorithms where I could see that it was being done and it was being done successfully. And it was kind of the beginning of it, you know, a 10 year span I was in there was kind of when, you know, things were really getting kind of kicked up in the algo space. So it was good to be able to, you know, look over their shoulder, I guess, a bit as they were building those things. So that was really, I'm trying to think of the book off the top of my head that deals Man with the market or the, no, it's there's, uh, I believe Michael Lewis, there's Flash Boys, mm -hmm. and there was one other one that he wrote as well. I haven't read Flash Boys. I've read the other one that I can't think of the name now. Um, but it deals with a lot of the high-frequency trade and how, like, the digitalization of the market. And I even remember how Bernie Madoff was a big player in the digitalization of the market. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really fascinating that you were involved kind of in that time 
Um, but I was curious. So when did, when did trade ideas, you mentioned that you were, you started subscribing to them. Was that when you were at the prop firm or was that when you went out on your own? Yeah, no, that was when it, right when it, it, it's one thing that I love about the company and why I've, I've had that subscription for so long is that when I was at the prop firm, the game was, uh, a big bid, a big ask, a whole number, things like this. And you would scalp around these based off what you saw on the tape. And they did a great job doing that. You could just set up a scan and say, you know, show me whenever there's a huge bid out there and it would just present you that. Um, and, you know, that was, it was simplistic and rudimentary, but it was what we needed. And then when I started to work in the hedge fund space, I was still trading my own account. Um, you know, I just was doing it as a, you know, I'm 20, I should be making as much money as I can. So let me work here and then, and then trade on the side. So I would use them for, um, you know, trading probably while I wasn't, shouldn't be at work. I had, uh, what, it was a program called Boss Key, I think. And you could set up like a, a programmable keyboard press and it would hide a certain number of applications that you put in. So it hid my trading platform and trade ideas. So I could sit there at work and trade and trade ideas has these audio alerts. So I would sit and do my emails or whatever, and it would flash up and say, Hey, look at this. And I could bring it up and, and, and place that trade. So I've used them kind of throughout, um, for different things, starting with the show me a big bid, show me a big offer, you know, show me an unusual print all the way down to what I do now, which is, you know, help building their artificial intelligence machine learning engine. Right. So it's crazy to see the, the, adaptation, which really, you know, contrasts to my first story of a, a, a firm refusing to change what wasn't working in their trading to, you know, sticking with trade ideas because they do all the time. They're like, okay, you know, this game doesn't work anymore. Let's change it to another game and, and so on and so forth. So I can ask a quick question about algorithmic trading. So, so mm -hmm. I guess it's maybe, is that, so are, what exactly do you find is algorithmic trading? Are those algorithmic trading, are those, again, I guess synonymous with high frequency trading is that short-term trading. Are there algorithms that are going trying to do like more longer-term strategies? I guess how how do you view algorithmic trading? Yeah, and that's it, it's funny and it's very common. Uh, what I think is a misconception about an algo trader all, always has to be a short-term trader. Um, I am primarily a swing trader at this point. Um, I would say ninety percent of what I do is uh, two days to a week or so hold. Um, so when I define an algorithmic trader, I kind of define, um, I guess you could call it a systems trader or, or someone who does more than just their simple discretion on uh, taking a trade, right? So everything I do will start with a back test. So I'll come up and I'll say, uh, trade has the ability to say, you know, what happens if uh, you buy stocks that are coming down hard to their 200 day moving average and put in a hammer candle there? And you buy them that day and you hold it for three days and you sell it. Um, and what they'll do is they'll come up with a, a back test and say, okay, here are all of the uh, scenarios in which that occurred. And this is what your, your profit outcome would have been. So from there, you can just take that and put that into the system if it looks good and say, trade it for me. So that's what I do a lot of where it's not so much the frequency of the trade. It's the fact that I've come up with an idea or heard an idea or read an idea. I've tested it with their back tester and now I'm able to implement it completely uh, via algorithm. Um, whether it's, you know, uh, intraday or, or swing or in theory, even investment, I'm actually working on some 
um, portfolio rotation algorithms that will basically just spit out a, these are the five stocks you should invest in this week and sell them and then go into the next one and so on and so forth. So um, long story short, the way I would just define it is somebody who has uh, kind of a, a giant math equation of whether or not they should enter trades, right? You know, you are looking for X because this is the performance you're going to enter because of X reason, you're going to exit because of X reason. And it's just, everything's laid out. Um, and then you just get a computer to, to, to do that, that work for you. And maybe just one follow-up for me, but yeah. you mentioned the word backtesting and I, we've had other guests who've talked about that. And I guess, you know, I'm sometimes the skeptic on the show, right? So when I hear people doing these backtesting tests, you've always heard these, you know, disclaimers on investment funds, you know, past performance doesn't carry, guarantee future results, right? So I, I could run a backtest on a hundred coin flips or a thousand coin flips. I'm sure I could find some trend in that data. How, how, do, how do you know we're not just analyzing noise, that it's not just going to happen something in the future? How, how do we know this is a, actually a useful tool to be using? So the, the, the big naughty word with that when you're talking to algo guys is called curve fitting, right? And that's what you're asking is, is how do you avoid curve fitting? Which is essentially just saying I, there's a, a, a piece of data and I want to follow that data and it, it, it shows this and even though there's no relation. And there's a couple ways to do it and there's some um, you know, mathematical ways when it comes to things we do with trade ideas, which is out of sample data. Um, Simply put, it just means if I wanted to find the average height of a, a man, I would take uh, 10,000 people and I'd put them in a room and then I'd take maybe a thousand of them and I'd put them in another room and I'd survey all those people and come up with an assumption. And that assumption would be, okay, the average guy is six feet tall. And then I'd go into that other room and I'd see how well that assumption held up with this data that wasn't yet tested. So that's one way to look at it where we'll build an algorithm off a set of data holding a bit of data back and then test to see whether that still works. Now, on top of that, I, I totally agree with your kind of idea that, you know, if you could just run a bunch of numbers, then I, I say this to everyone, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have successful algorithms if it was just back testing and running numbers. I think the guys with the biggest computers would be making the most money. Um, so what we do, uh, specifically at trade ideas and what I do as well is everything has to start from a nugget of, uh, trading truth or, or something that somebody does. Like every algorithm that's in our AI right now is something that somebody within trade ideas actually trades profitably. So, uh, the example I use is, uh, there's an algo called bond shorty, which is my, the first one I've ever built with them. And the theory behind it is just a, a theory that I've been trading for years, which is I'm looking for a stock that yesterday got clobbered and today looks like it's breaking down from being clobbered, right? So the, the synopsis of the trade doesn't start with the mathematics. The synopsis starts with something that I know that is a pretty universal truth that the, the psychology makes sense, right? If you were long a stock and it got down 10% yesterday, you'd probably say, okay, let me put the stop under those lows. And, uh, you know, if it bounces, great. And if not, I'll, I'll stop out. Um, and then we start with that. And then we let the system tell us under what scenarios does it work better? Is it better if this happens um, close to earnings or away from earnings or under the 200 day or over the 200 day or these type of things? But um, that's the main way I would say we stop this just fitting random noise together into an equation is everything has to start with um, 
you know, one, someone who works at trade ideas, because mostly the people who work at trade ideas trade for a living and then do stuff at trade ideas as well. Or, you know, again, back when I could travel, when the world would travel, I would go to these conferences and you'd go to the pub after and you'd sit down with another trader and you say, what do you do? And, you know, if I got a pretty good picture on that, I would go and then take it and test it. So the main difference, I think, when, when you're talking like a quant firm and, and kind of what I do and what Trade Ideas does is that it starts with a trader and it's always, um, I don't know if you get mad for swearing, but it's my, my bullshit detector is always, does it make sense to a trader? Like, can you sit down? And this is something I learned from the prop firm where the guy I learned to trade from there always would look at me and he'd see me in a position. He said, why are you in that position? And if you can't explain to me in two lines or less why you're in that position, it's a shitty trade and get out. And it's the same kind of mentality I take to trade ideas where explain to me what that algorithm is looking for. And if the guy starts talking about um, regression, divergence, and you know, all these things I don't understand, then I'm like, I'm not interested. If he says, well, you know, I, uh, bottoming tails, you know, we know that bottoming tails means that late day buyers came in. And then after bottoming tails, I think that a strength would create a more of an up move. I'm like, you know, that's, that's something that makes sense psychologically that we can prove out by the numbers. So if you start at a good question, I think you arrive at a, a better answer. If that makes sense. No, great. I, I appreciate the explanation. Oh, no problem. You mentioned briefly, you mentioned uh, curve fitting or over optimization. Mm -hmm. Um, how what what do you how does that work? What exactly is that, and how do you I guess work around that? I've heard of a lot of traders that do that. Basically, like, I know you you find some strategy that it, you know gives you an edge, and then they they sit there and try to I guess eliminate every little trade, every little trade that may not have worked, and all of a sudden you know they I feel like sometimes you're left with only five trades out of the past ten years, or you might yeah. uh, you might you might just eliminate just a really random set like you might eliminate trades between you know 9 30 and 10 30 just be, you know, it just doesn't necessarily make sense how do you i guess work on that what, what can you tell us about that well, yeah so first just to explain curve fitting a little more and i think you hit the nail on the head there it's if so for example i have a back test and say it's right 60 percent of the time which as you know as traders if you're right 60 percent of the time you're golden just stop right there you'll you know keep keep compounding with uh, proper risk management, you'll be fine. Um, but if I wanted to go through and I just wanted to remove every trade that didn't work, right? This, this trade entered at 9.32 on a Wednesday. Um, so let me remove all trades at 9.32 on Wednesday and just keep removing them until I have 100% winning trades. Um, yes, you'll do that and your back test on Twitter will look pretty and you might be even sell some poor bastards who think that you're onto something. Um, with that. But the problem is because you've created these highly specific examples, you've removed um, the law of large numbers, which is what we live by as data guys. If um, you know, you talked about a coin flip, right? To see an accurate um, representation of a coin flip, something that we know the results on, you have to run that simulation, I think 10,000 times to get very close to what an accurate 50-50 of a coin flip is. I always say, for an extreme example, when I'm talking about data is flip a coin three times and tell me the win rate. So you, you can't, it's just, every outcome is wrong, right? So you have to, so that's the first way to avoid curve fitting is if you find yourself eliminating everything that doesn't work, 
then you've you've definitely done it right you're you're there should be enough data in there that you could accurately define a coin flip right if you can't do that you can't do anything else the other thing and this is a bit more subjective as i always say go back to your uh, your trader mind. So I have people all the time because my YouTube, my Twitter and everything sending me in, oh, what do you think of this algorithm? What do you think of this algorithm type of thing? Um, and some of them, you know, I had a gentleman a while back who sent me uh, something that looked great, but he was scalping for, I think a five or 10 minute trade. And he had uh, filters in there, like what was their revenue growth and what was their current you know, assets to debts and all of this. And I say, well, that, that doesn't make you, you definitely put those in to curve it. Right. So every time you make a change to an algorithm or you add something or you add whatever, you have to take a step back and you have to say, as somebody who trades, does this make sense? And this is why, and it hurts a lot of people when I say this and they hate it because they think that coming to trading directly into, I want to be an algorithmic quantitative trader is a good route and I highly disagree. I think you need to learn to trade first so that you're able to answer that question is, is this something that I think legitimately could affect um, the, the, uh, the, the position and the trade, or is this something that just coincidentally through random chance, the numbers say that it, it does. And that's, again, it, it all just, it's very non-subjective. And there are again, I don't want to go into the weeds, but we use genetic algorithms and out of sample data and, and like all these fancy things that help us with that. But again, it always starts and ends with a human to make sure that, and that human has to be a trader, has to be someone who at least understands the concepts of trading so that they, you know, they're not messing with data just to mess with data. So how do you take then one of your strategies from a back test to a front test is that, do you, do you do it incrementally? I'm assuming you don't go full risk on the very first day, right? You might Correct. Yeah. come in smaller to make sure you're really getting, um, getting, getting that you're, I guess, essentially that your, uh, your back test is accurate in the real world now. Yeah, well, it's, uh, and even before then, so I start with a back test and I want that back test to achieve a certain, certain milestones. And of course it's, it's, you know, it's been built using my methodology to make sure that I've been inserted in every part of it to make sure that there's no, you know, robot going rogue or doing anything. And then the beauty of um, trade ideas and the auto trader that's built in it is that I can connect to my live a brokerage account and I can connect to their simulated environment at the same time. So I will run the, while I'm trading myself, I have off on another part of my screen, anything new running in simulation. And that's where I get to find things like, um, you know, fill rates and I get to, you know, cause it's, it is not as accurate as real, but it's that one step closer uh, accurate is real. And I run that. And once I can get a week or two of it's acting as if I thought it would in the back test, then it starts to go. And, and you're right. It starts small. It starts with, you know, let me just trade 50 shares or, or something very, very small in every trade again, to test fills to test. Cause every time you go from a simulated world um, to a real world, there's always something you know, there's, you know, you're going to get slippage, you're going to get the commissions, maybe you didn't count of things like this. And then as it proves itself, it gets incrementally increased in, in the amount of risk it's allowed to take in my account. 
Okay. Well, that's, that's great. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. You really explained that, I think, in, in good detail that I could understand it. Brian, does that all, that all make sense? The front test, the back test, front test? Yeah, I, yeah the front test, back test, it, it makes sense to me. I guess, again, maybe I'm still a little bit of a skeptic, right? Like, I, I imagine there's, you know, like you said, you're, you seem like a really smart guy. And I imagine there's a lot of other people, you know, with PhDs from MIT and all these places, you know, trying to get in the finance world and building these algorithms, right? And, and I know there's a lot of algorithms trading. But wouldn't some hedge fund, I guess, if they found just this ultimate algorithm that worked all the time, wouldn't they be just making tons and tons of money? Wouldn't everyone just be giving that hedge fund a ton of money and like you would see them? I mean, and maybe there's some secret hedge fund that I don't know about that's just wildly successful doing this strategy. But, but it, it seems yeah. if, if this is such a great successful strategy, why isn't this just like everyone dumping their money into, you know, this sector or that, that hedge firm that created that algorithm, you know? It, it seems to me, or is, is there something holding it back or is our AI not good enough or, or what's, you know, what's the, the thing? Well, the, the first and kind of, I guess, the smart-ass response I'll, I'll, I'll give is, have you ever heard of Goldman Sachs? Um, they're the small company. They run a lot of algorithms. They don't, you've probably never heard of them. They're only, they're only little guys. But um, yeah, the, uh, the, an audio book or a book, I'm a big audio book guy, um, uh, to listen to is The Man That Solved the Market, which is about the most successful quantitative hedge fund out there that uh, had to had to close down new investments many many years ago and smokes the market year over year and it's all quants and algo stuff so it it does certainly exist um, the problem is the same as the problem with with anything in investing is that uh, eventually if you get uh, too big if you have a strategy and that strategy gets too big that you come in the liquidity restraints the same as anything else right you've got you know, if I've got something and that's where I think the advantage is as a retail trader is that you can, you can run these algorithms and these things because you're not hit with those walls. But I can tell you the pattern that occurs as someone who worked in the inside of, of hedge funds. And, and by the end, our firm, sorry, our firm was doing the accounting and the legal work for, I think, 150 different hedge funds. There is a very distinct cycle of somebody figures it out. They smoke the market. Maybe they started a $10 million fund and then they balloon up over the next three to five years to a $4 billion fund. Their system no longer works at that capacity. It all crumbles. The fund dissolves and moves on to the next one. And it is just over and over and over again. And it's why if you actually study hedge fund performance, there is very little correlation with how someone did last year to how they'll do next. So the the best hedge funds in the world, no one can ever invest in because they've realized that if I get bigger than this, I can't uh, continue my algorithm. Um, and again, it just, you, I, I would like to see a chart. I'm sure, sure someone charted out, but this ramp up and then explosion, I just saw it too many times of, uh, we saw a fund once and this guy was doing um, some algorithmic options trading. He would do, um, you know, essentially uh, like a covered call kind of automated type strategy and it did well and it made a bunch of money and it made, you know, he was making 20 to 30% uh, quarter over quarter doing fantastically. And then, yeah, he, of course, the greed gets in. He's like, well, I'm making 2% of, of assets under management. So let's let in, I think he ballooned to like 5 billion. And then all of a sudden he realized that every time he hit the button to do anything in the options market, he was getting slammed he underperformed the market for a year and a half and everyone left and he was out. And 
you know, from his point of view, it's probably worth it, right? Because you get those fees for a couple of years and then everyone leaves and you go, okay, that's fine. Um, the other thing I will say, and this is why we've built the AI and this is why the AI is set up exactly how it is, is that every strategy degrades over time. And anyone who tells you that they figured something out and it works and it will always work is completely wrong. It's not a, a lot of people also uh, equate algorithmic trading to like passive income. Like all I have to do is figure out the secret and then I turn on my bot and away I go. Well, there's a reason I run 10 different algos and I run some intraday and I run some swing is I, you know, full disclose perfectly honestly, all of my swing algos for the past month haven't done anything. They're not down a bunch. They're not up a bunch. It's the market it, it, it has not been conducive to what I do. The day trading algos do better. And then in the time that, that you know, the market's ramping straight up, my swing trading algos do better and my other one. So the reason I run a lot of these different things and the reason that our AI is set up the way it is, is every strategy just degrades over time, whether it's a change in the market or change in volatility or someone figuring out your game, whatever you're doing now won't work a couple of years from now, right? So, and again, it comes to how nimble are you to, you know, adapt. And if you're a giant hedge fund, you're probably not that, you're probably not that nimble. If you're a retail trader, hopefully you're using what I think is our only advantage, which is we can be in, we can be out, we can be in cash. We don't have any, anyone telling us, you know, these hedge funds quite often, they have mandates of you need to be X amount invested or Y amount hedged or in this sector or this sector or this sector. Um, but that's, again, I ramble a lot. If you guys haven't noticed, uh, so cut me off anytime. That but was incredibly that, interesting. I, I that, love that that's, answer. That's the main reasons. There's a couple of reasons, but those are the two main reasons that I kind of see for no one's figured it out kind of thing. Well, I, I like that you mentioned liquidity. I, I run a live stream uh, for day trading where I share my screen and I trade a lot of the low float penny stocks. Mm -hmm. And people ask me, well, why, why isn't, yeah, why isn't a hedge fund just coming in here and trading all this? And I go, well, let's, let's do the math real quick. And so I just say, okay, we've had 2 million shares change hands, you know, or maybe 5 million shares change hands and the VWAP sitting at $2. So there's only been $5 million, yeah. which is a lot of money, a lot of money for me. Trust me, if I had $5 million, it'd be like, you know, that'd be awesome. Yeah. $5 million. But for a hedge fund that is, you know, you're, you're talking in the billions, it's they can't get a trade in and out. They can't make any significant amount of money. But as a retail trader, like you said, you can get a thousand shares in and out. You can get... 5,000 shares, 10,000 shares in and out of a, out of a, a stock like that. Well, and it, it's, it's even more extreme than that, that I would say that the hedge funds that you, um, that people invest in would by law not be allowed to trade those stocks, not by regulation. But what happens is a hedge fund creates prospectus. So they, they go to the investor and they say, as a hedge fund, I am going to do X, Y, and Z, right? I'm I'm a long short portfolio where I'm always going to be equally long and equally short. And the reason that that's so important, it's important to investors is because if you're investing in a hedge fund, that's not your only money. If you got $5 million in a hedge fund somewhere, you own a bunch of real estate, you've got a bunch of mutual funds, you got a bunch, you're looking for an asset to diversify that's going to have a different return aspect than other, not necessarily has to even be better. It just, you've got, these people have so much money that if they put it all in the market, then every time the market takes a 10% hit like it did last week, they've lost, you know, 10% of their billion dollar net worth, right? So quite often these funds, they're told you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this because at 
the only thing these people don't want the hedge funds to do is explode, right? And if you think about it, if they got in that, that you're probably trading that penny stock that did $5 million worth of volume that day on the day it's doing 10 times more volume than it's normally doing, right? Exactly. So the day after, even if they got in, got a great trade, they're not getting out. Like they yep. just, So they just can't physically trade these assets, which is our advantage. And that's what the thing is I think everyone should look at is, is when you sit down in the day and, and you understand that there's MIT, there's Goldman Sachs, there's um, the, the, this audio book of this guy who's churning out money all the time with his quants. Um, they got all these big guys. Where do you, what's your advantage? And everyone likes to think that they're smarter than everyone else or whatever, but it's not, it's not that. What it is, I think personally, is that you're small, right? So take your money, go in, you know, buy, take your $250,000 account and know that nobody cares about your existence. You're, you are not even a small fish in the pond, you're plankton, <laughs> right? Like just get in, get your money, get out on to the next thing, right? Absolutely. No, that's perfect. That makes a lot of sense. I think the, you know, that really helps explain, I think the difference why retail has an advantage in certain markets versus your, your billion dollar hedge funds and everything mm-hmm. else. So that's awesome. I did want to jump back a little bit because we talked a lot about hedge funds. That words come up a lot. You work directly with hedge funds. It sounds like you had a very successful business. You said you actually acquired your, your business got acquired. Yeah. Well, to be clear, it wasn't my business, but yeah, it was the, we grew it together with the team that we had, but yeah, it was acquired by uh, Mitsubishi bank, which to be honest, until they started sniffing around, I thought they were just cars, but I guess they're like the yeah. fifth biz- biggest <laughs> bank in the world or something like that. But, yeah. uh, that actually surprised me. I, I served in the Marines and we had, we ended up getting Mitsubishi air conditioners at one point shipped <laughs> over to Iraq. And I was, that was the same thing. I was like, Oh, they make they air everything. conditioners. Yeah. yeah I think so now, like, now they know, I know I know they make banks or they <laughs> yeah. are in banking. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, yeah, sorry. And I, I cut you off, but yeah, we, we started out small, we grew to we're big enough to get noticed and they were just wanting to get into this hedge fund administration space. Um, so they just, it was one of those just come along buy this small company from nowheresville, Canada. And, and then they were, they're established and then kind of build it up from there. So what, t- can you talk a little bit about some of the hedge funds you worked with? Maybe not divulging names, but you said you were working at the, in the time of Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, and I remember the name of the book. It was Dark Pools. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, book. yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, go yeah. On. So, well, first of all, I like to demystify hedge funds for a lot of traders. I can't count the amount of times they say, well, I, I shorted a hundred shares of Apple and I put my stop here and the damn market maker, the damn hedge fund or the damn prop <laughs> firm or whatever, they came up and got my stop. And I'm just like, they, they don't care. About you. <laughs> you're, you're not even, you know, if they, if they stepped on you on the way to do something, they wouldn't even look back to see if you're okay. These are, are monolithic um, companies. And to preface it, I didn't even, we were a small boutique firm. We didn't work with the biggest hedge funds out there. We, we took the guys that no one else would take. Um, and then hopefully they grew big enough that, that we, would, we would reap the benefit of that. Um, and what I'll say is they are basically guys like you and me, and or guys that uh, uh, have a, a a passion for the market, they have a different way of looking at it, and they're good at raising money. And really, what I'll say again, without I obviously can't divulge any names or anything like that, but the ones that are the most successful are the ones that closed, 
Um, I always would tell anyone who's interested in investing in any of those is if they've been around for a while and they're big, I don't expect the moon from them, even if their past performance is say that old uh, liquidity restraints we talked about. Um, but yeah, they're, they're as varied as any other trading philosophy out there. I've been in ones that were giant investment committees where there's a bunch of guys in three-piece suits smoking cigars, your, your typical Wall Street fat cats that you think about. And I've been in some that were, they looked like tech startups. Everyone's wearing board shorts and t-shirts and they're, you know, there's a bunch of nerds on computers and, uh, but they are as varied as, as, as you are. And they're not these mystical creatures that make a whole bunch of money and do whatever. Um, the, the main difference I want to point out between a hedge fund and mutual fund is it's all, it's just regulation, right? If you're a mutual fund, you have to be long stocks and pray they're going to go up, right? And most people, even traders, have some sort of a, a tax-deferred mutual fund somewhere doing something. And note that that guy managing that mutual fund, there's no difference between him and a guy managing a hedge fund, except they're allowed to do more of, of what they want. Now, there's some crazy ones out there, and those were always my favorite that they loved. There was one who bought and sold vintage cars that was his hedge fund because they they can invest in as long as they outlaid in that document that they send to you they can invest in whatever they want um and that's where the real power is and i I think it's a lot of um you know not to get political or anything but a lot of bureaucratic crap that normal people can't invest because you have to be an accredited investor which i think is one hundred and fifty thousand annual income or a million net worth or something you know there's these requirements that you have to be rich in order to be considered to be a smart investor, which makes no sense to me at all. Um, but that's all they're doing is they're trying to somewhat outperform the market or be safer than the market or um, be a different asset class in some way, shape or form. So, you know, you'll get hedge funds and their day trading prop. Like we had one that was a day trading prop firm. It basically recruited people. It gave them part of their money. It had them day trade with extreme leverage and then pass that savings on to the investor. And then we had, you know, the vintage car guy and we had a bunch of uh, dark pool um, sniffers and, but every, everything you can think of a guy who actually just bought physical gold, that was his job, not to buy gold futures. He was like the gold bugs hedge fund. So he had a vault that he had gold in and he laser engraved your name and, and a serial number on every bar and said, this bar is for you and this bar is for you. So really it's just a, a, a place that rich people can go and, and invest in cooler stuff than we can, unfortunately. No, I, I think that's a good analogy. I read um, Timothy Sykes book, uh, American hedge fund or an, an American hedge fund. And he, he started a hedge fund, you know, very small in the hedge fund world. I think he was mm-hmm. like a $5 million hedge fund. Yeah. And, and that was kind of, he ended up closing it. And that was basically his indictment of the hedge fund world is the regulations are so strict, you know, because you were unsophisticated. I always give the comparison, but nobody's standing there at the Seven Eleven telling me, you know, you can only buy five scratch offs today because we don't think you're sophisticated enough to, you know, to buy a thousand of them. Right. So it's just interesting where, where the government lets us gamble and where they won't let us gamble. Yeah, well, and that's as a Canadian, I always look at you guys with your pattern day trader rule. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Like, I I personally have some accounts. I've got multiple accounts running different strategies, but I have some accounts that 
if I was American, I wouldn't be able to run because I usually have a test account of 10K or something somewhere where I'll put something in when I want to just try it small to play with. And yeah, I think that's the weirdest thing that it's, you know, you guys, the land of the free, except if you want, if you want to buy Apple and sell it a little bit later, um, which, but uh, it really is uh, just regulation. And then back to the hedge fund thing, that's the only difference between a hedge fund and mutual fund. They can do more. Doesn't mean they're smarter. Doesn't mean they're more powerful. Doesn't mean they know anything else. It's take a mutual fund manager and allow him to, uh, to short the spy when he thinks the market's going to go down to hedge his portfolio and you got a hedge fund. Just, oh, go ahead, Michael. I'm going to get off topic. So you go first, Brian. Well, I, I was just curious when you switched from to the hedge fund world and it sounded like you had some more traditional investing ideas. Is that what you were doing? Were you doing like, you know, market research, you know, trying to build a case, you know, oh, we should go long here. Or was it more of this short term? I'm just curious, what was your role in the hedge fund and how did that hedge fund, I guess, make its decisions? So what we did is, is we weren't working with the hedge fund, for example, we were working for the investor. So you would come to me as an investor and say, I've got $5 million. Buddy of mine at the golf course told me about XYZ hedge fund manager. We would get our arses on a plane. We would fly down there and, you know, the accountant would go over to the accountant department and look through their books and make sure everything there was up to date. And the legal guy would go to their investor relations and make sure everything was up to, up to par there. And I would sit down with the portfolio manager and the traders and I say, okay, what are you guys doing? Right. Because everybody was worried after Madoff where it was this thing that no one under really understood what he was doing. And he had these performance returns that looked great. No one really looked too hard at him. And his, I think his auditor was like, related to him or something. It was like a buddy who just signed off whatever he did. So everybody wanted these firms to go in and say, I don't work for you. I work for that investor. I want to find out what you did. And that's what I loved about it is that, um, you know, my job would be to figure out what they did, figure out where the risks would be, if there was any massive systemic risks, and then present that back to the investor. But at the same time as a trader, and I was trading myself at the time, every time I got a chance, um, is that I could then go and say, that was a really good idea. Let me go test it. And then let me go implement it in my own trading and go, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to copy exactly what they were doing with their investments, but there was nothing wrong with when I had to take the portfolio manager to the pub and talk about what he did that I couldn't also say, Oh, that's a good idea. How do you trail that stop? Right. What, what do you use for risk management? You know, what, you know, why are you interested in this indicator? Why that derivatives contract, things like this, but it wasn't so much that I worked for the actual hedge fund. It was more that I was able to go in and, and poke them and able to figure out what, what it was that, that made them tick. That's, that's a super interesting job. I'm sure you got some incredible networking and just to hear all those people, how they built those portfolios. I mean, that's just uh, super interesting. It, it was, but then at the same time, it was demystifying in the same way that, you know, you would go to, I'm at my, you know, fifth flight to New York that month or, or, or second month. And I've talked to this guy and I can tell he's got no idea what the hell he's <laughs> talking about, but he's real charismatic and he raised a bunch of money and he's basically just an index fund that charges higher fees, but you know, he's got some good buds and they invested with him and he beat the market maybe, you know, two out of five years and they're happy with it. So again, it really just a, a spectrum from like super genius quant nerds to, um, you know, super genius, uh, fundamental guys to guys just, they sell well. And that's really all they got. Did, did you notice like, was there a difference in how successful they were or any attracting clients or attracting funding or? 
Oh yeah. Well, there was, and it was funny, the, the guys that I would invest with, the guys who were really smart and that everything I had a question for when it came to, because a lot of my focus was risk, right? Because I'm saying, okay, how are you not going to explode, right? If you're using this derivative strategy, how are you not going to explode? We dealt with one that did a lot of uh, distressed debt around the um, around the crash, where he would short the equity and buy the um, the debt of things like Lehman Brothers. So he was short, um, I think, a hundred million dollars worth of Lehman Brothers stock. And as they're going under, he had about a hundred traders, and their job was to sit at Bloomberg terminals and offer stupid prices for Lehman Brothers bonds, knowing that when a company goes bankrupt, the bondholders get paid out first and then the equity holders get nothing always. Um, and, but at the same time, trying to say, how do you make sure that you just don't lose everything? And, and the guys who had the best answer for that were usually, you know, they're good thinkers and they were nerds and they raised the least amount of money. The guy who raised the most amount of money was always the guy who had no idea what he was doing but he was going to keggers and like, you know, he was do he was just hitting the road all the time and just hoping he could beat the market for enough years that he could, he could get paid off a hedge fund. Kind it, seems of thing, like, right? it seems like the best combination would be have that kind of kegger be a figurehead and then have your kind of your nerd be the secret guy that's actually operating everything. And, you know, you get the if, best of both. <laughs> if I was to set it up, that's exactly how I'd do it. I'd get some like super genius guys and I'd just lock them in a room somewhere, which it, hey, maybe that's what we do with trade ideas, right? We've got these like, <laughs> You're really not smart somebody. programmers. <laughs> we shove them over there and then we've got these, these guys that go out and, and, talk about things um, and they have them out there, but it's, again, it's, I just, you know, the main thing for a lot of people get fascinated when I talk about head funds, cause it's like the super secret thing, but it's just, it's just guys trying to beat the market. Some of them are good at it. Some of them are bad. Uh, usually they get greedy enough that they explode. That's kind of my summary of, of, I guess the hedge fund space. Let me, let me do a shameless plug here and keep, keep listening to Trading for Keeps. We do have a hedge fund manager coming on in a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Um, so we can, we'll put the screws to him, Brian. I'm, looking, I'm definitely go. looking forward to that. But we're, <laughs> we're going to try to get some of those perspectives. But I think it's really interesting, just the perspective you had, because you actually got to go in. And it sounds like the hedge funds might have almost been a little bit, not necessarily scared, but maybe intimidated by you. Like you're really coming to look at, you know, look, look what's under the hood and make sure everything's running properly. Yeah. Well, and that was, that was a lot of it, right? A lot of it was, you know, I was focused on the trading end of things, but we had guys going over the books and we had guys. Um, and when you talk to him, just say it's a hedge fund administration firm and he'll just go, okay. Cause they're just super, they're, they're everywhere. There's giant ones. We were just a little bit more of a hands-on boutique type thing. Cause it was right after, after Madoff, but uh, they were, you know, not so much worried. Again, it was funny because the guys who were worried, we actually would look at a lot more because, um, you know, they're the ones who are really desperate for investments. Whereas if we uh, were able to do something where, you know, if, if I don't care whether or not I get another investor and, and our team comes knocking and says, let us in, they'll probably go, no. Just not, I just, it's not worth it to get this guy's money, but the guys who were, were come on in I'm, I'm and look at everything and I'm super nervous and please give us money. Those were the guys that we were like, Oh, what do you got going on that, that we need to <laughs> need to focus a little harder on? In my understanding reading, um, I read a book about Bernie Madoff and somebody had interviewed him afterwards. And apparently his fraud was just so blatant too. Like if anyone had actually 
taken the time to look at it. They would have very quickly realized that there was no, I think even the trades he said he claimed to be making, there was no way like the, the liquidity was not there. He was not able to get that many shares or that many contracts in and out. Well, and that's what kind of spawned this hedge fund administration industry is because everybody who signed off on birdie stuff kind of worked for him. Right. And that was, that was, even though you're supposed to have an independent auditing firm, but his independent auditing firm was like one dude who they were good buds. And I think that was his only client. So the guy just wrote him a check for a couple million a year and the guy signed off on whatever he gave to him. That was it. So that's where the, the concept of a firm that worked for the investors made sense because I didn't care if I went back to the guy. If I went back to the guy and I said, don't invest with these guys, they seem shady as hell. That's almost better for us because then we've gained a little bit more trust. So it was advantageous to us to be very, very um, scrutinizing and very, very, uh, hard on what they were doing and, and all of this. Cause you're right. It wasn't like he was a mastermind in this. It was the fact that everybody was getting fat and happy. They were, everyone was getting paid and he had an accounting firm signing off on it. And, and, and until no one gets paid, everyone's happy. And then as soon as no one gets paid and the whole thing kind of explodes. I, I was remember listening to something about this similar too. And I, as I recall, they said that like a lot of people might've been suspicious because he just had such consistent returns. They thought he was doing a lot of insider trading. And so they didn't want to like get become guilty, you know, try to find that he was actually right. insider trading so much. Mm. Like he was doing, you know, SEC violations, not that he was running, you know, a Ponzi scheme. And so yeah, people had deliberate blindness just because they were getting those returns. Yeah, everyone's fine if he's breaking the law as long as they're getting paid and they're, they're not responsible <laughs> for it. Yeah. And, and Bernie, I mean, that, that's such a fascinating case, not to get too deep into this, but Bernie was such a fascinating like, He helped write a lot of the rules and the laws that were governing, you know, when the SEC wanted, they were like, oh, we need to regulate this. The SEC came to Bernie and said, how should we regulate this? And he'd be like, oh, you know, you could do this, you could do that. And I mean, and he came so close a couple of times to being caught I think there was one time where regulators came and asked him about something in particular. I think it was about some, maybe some front running or some insider trading, like Brian mentioned, because they had gotten tipped off about it. And they said, okay, well, what, just give us the account numbers of, of where you have the, all that money at. Because they were like, you know, like, well, we'll just make sure that everything adds up. And he, he turned in the account numbers to them and thought, okay, the gig's up. Because they're going to go, they're going to check those account numbers, and they're going to realize, you know, there's no money in them. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a couple million compared to a couple billion that was supposed to be. But the SEC, they never even checked it. They didn't even go check it. They said, oh, if Bernie Madoff told us the money's there, then the money's there. They didn't even go check it. So it was just this, this whole process of nobody, everybody just trusted everybody so much. And so I think that's really, you know. Or they were, they were, they were lazy, right. you know. They just didn't want to, you know, do some extra work during their day. <laughs> right. If you're making, Maybe. if you're making 20, 30% a year and you've got 10 million invested with them, you're making three, 4 million a year, you know, just, you're going to just shut up and just continue to collect the money until it doesn't happen. If again, you guys and, and the listeners, if you haven't watched you uh, and McGregor's movie rogue trader, go check that out like immediately. Cause that's a lot of, a lot of parallels to that where he started off with, you know, uh, nicely enough, he just wanted to hide some losses that some some lady that was trading for him made. And then all of a sudden, the, the Bank of England, um, Barron's Bank, was it? It was a giant bank that had like the Queen of England as a client got went bankrupt because of this one guy who started with this one small little, whoops, let's just fix this and move on. And then, 
you know, years later, everything just exploded. This is the same kind of thing. We'll definitely link to that. So we've got several books, The Man That Solved the Market, Dark Pools, Flash Boy, American Hedge Fund. We'll link to the movie Rogue, Rogue Trader as well. So lot, lots of great content to check out after the fact. Brian, if you're good on the hedge funds, I do want to, I want to go off topic here for a little bit. So uh, Michael, you mentioned you're, you're, you're from Canada. You're born mm-hmm. and raised in Canada. Um, I am from upstate New York, just outside of Buffalo. And so I was always, you know, Canada was very close by. Um, but I, and my wife is, she's actually from North Carolina, but she's a big fan of Nova Scotia and you know, that, the, the postcards that come out of there. What, what can you tell me a little bit? You live in Nova Scotia. Is that correct? That's right. No, I've, uh, born here, lived here all my life. Love it. Um, I, I love to travel. I love New York, right? I've been more times than I can count. I've been in New York. Uh, it's, it's just very quiet here. It's very, everything's a little bit more chill. Um, you know, I've got the real estate prices are probably way better than you guys are playing. I've got a <laughs> big piece of land. I can't see my neighbors. I can't hear any of them. It's, it's, it's great. But no, it's just a very um, Canada, right? I'm obviously biased, but I love Canada anyway. It's beautiful and the people here are great. But just like America, right? You've got areas that are better and areas that are worse and areas that are more populated and areas that are less populated. And Nova Scotia is pretty much just not very populated anywhere. And that's what I love the most about it is you, if you go, if I go outside um, in New York, anywhere at, 3 30 in the morning there's still people everywhere right it's hustle and bustle is always going but um you know me as a trader in my little bunker here there's been times where i haven't seen anyone who's not my family for like three weeks and, and it might not be for everyone but i like my own little little shack in the woods now i will say i miss i had kind of the perfect balance you know going to new york and la and chicago and all these places and then coming home and now, I don't know, I may go crazy at some point. This, this beard I've got on the go might get insane if they don't let me out. <laughs> That's a true Canadian look you got. <laughs> uh, no, I love it here. The family's um, always been here. There's uh, tons to see. There's tons to do. Uh, as long as you don't really want to hang out with people and you want to see like waves and stuff instead. <laughs> Well, that's, that's what I love. I'm a big fan of nature. One of my favorite things to do is honestly go backpacking where it's like, if I, my goal is to see more wildlife than humans. Um, mm-hmm. So I am probably when uh, now we've got, we've got a uh, three week old, so we probably won't be doing a whole lot of backpacking in the really super near future. But if we were to come up to Nova Scotia, is there some, some key places I should check out, you know, that are a little bit off the beaten path that I'm not going to find in the tourist book. Yes. You got to go to, so Nova Scotia is a peninsula and right above us is an island uh, called Cape Breton and it's a, a beautiful island. It's actually Nova Scotia in, if I ruin this history, someone's going to slap me, but <laughs> it's Scottish for New Scotland. And that's because uh, this place, Cape Breton, it actually looks like Scotland with rolling green hills and, and all of this. And they've got some great, you know, as long as you're, you're keeping your, your heart and your lungs in shape because those hills are, are gnarly, but uh, they've got some great hiking trails. You could walk off and not see anyone for um, forever, for for days and days and days. Uh, that's the one place I'd go for hiking for sure. Is you'll get you'll get lost, and the views there are just absolutely insane. And then again, just the the nicest people because it's it's all tourist base up there. So everybody is you know when you come into a restaurant, they're happy to see you. They're 
And again, you don't even need to say you're American. You can just say you're Canadian and that's technically true. And away you go. You get a free beer. That's the secret. <laughs> Perfect. I, I do have my Canadian citizenship. So yeah. So, all right. Is there any place that might be a little better where, you know, I might be able to take a one-year-old. So I don't, I, if I'm not, if I'm not looking to do a lot of hiking. Uh, there's a couple great places. So we, um, Halifax, which is the, the main city of Nova Scotia has the second deepest natural Harbor in the world. Um, first being Sydney, Australia. Um, okay. So we actually have a really strong uh, military history and a really strong kind of nautical history. Cause what used to happen a lot in both world war one, world war two is that ships would come up from America and dock in Halifax and resupply and refuel and, and, and safety or whatever before going over to, to fight in the war. So from there, one of the things um, we have is a bunch of museums of, of, of the Atlantic. So museums of boating and, and, and things like that. Not so much for your young one, but we actually have a whole bunch of pubs up here. I think second most pubs per capita in North America is in Halifax. So a lot of places there. That, that's, um, that's the Canada. That's the Canada I expected. Yeah. Well, the first one is, is Newfoundland, which is a little bit more north. So we've got, we've got them cornered here. No, there's nice. a lot of places. Uh, Peggy's Cove is great. You can see, you know, it's one of those that you just look out into the ocean until, till the curve kind of thing. And um, again, a lot of, a lot of nature, not a lot of people, which is fine by me. Absolutely. That's great. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and this is, we hadn't even touched on this, this other topic. So first I want to ask you, can, will you come back on another, on a later date? Sure. This, this is, I, I just feel like we've had such a great conversation here, but I do feel like we're getting a little long on time, but I wanted to ask you about, um, isolation tanks or, uh, sensory, sensory deprivation tanks. I understand mm-hmm. that you're a big proponent of them. You use them yourself. I have never been in one. We have a couple near me. And I was about, I was like planning on my first trip and then COVID hit and I'm like, okay, how close do I really, do I want to share this tiny tank? Not necessarily share, but like be in the same space as somebody else just mm-hmm. did. So I have not, I am big into meditation. I've realized, I noticed that uh, just, just putting a meditation practice into my trading routine every day increased, you know, my mental capabilities and uh, allowed me to focus on what I needed to focus on and tune out a lot of the noise. So if you could just talk a little bit about your experience with the uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Yeah. So f- first I'll say that that meditation practice is very, very important. I would say anyone who's planning on doing it, at least do some sort of basic mindfulness um, apps like Headspace and Calm are really good. Um, you know, they have free intro classes and then you can pay if you want. Um, but they, it's important because, you know, your, your mind's going to get a little bit messed with when you go in there. So having that, uh, at least that practice of, you know, bring yourself back to your breath and, and everything. And just a side note, hundred percent agree with meditation is hugely important when it comes to trading. Everyone says, you know, uh, trading is 90% mental or something. I think it's a hundred percent mental, right? It's, it's, I'm one, you know, you watch any of my videos. I'm not one to say that I'm right any more than 55, 60% of the time. And that's, I'm not going to be, Oh, I make money all the blah, blah. It's just, but the ability to withstand the times that you're not right. And the ability to uh, keep 
you know, going forward with, with the plan and everything that has a lot to do with the meditation as well as concentration and everything. So that's step one. If you're, if you're one of those people that you sit down, you meditate and you're still at the point where that kind of silence and concentration overwhelms you, then don't go to a tank yet. Cause uh, essentially, you know, what you're getting in for is they'll let you into a room. You'll have a room all by yourself. And in the middle, there's a, a massive, like sometimes big cast iron tank. They're not these little dinky floaty pods that people think they're, they're huge. And there's about a thousand pounds of Epsom salt in there. And the inside temperature and the water is perfect human body temperature. They've, they've calibrated it perfectly. So you go in, you close the door, you float effortlessly Everything is absolutely perfectly 100% dark and absolutely perfectly silent. And there's um, the, the human body temperature. So you're not hot, you're not cold, you're weightless, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything. So every sense except, you know, taste and smell is completely shut off. And what happens is when you're meditating, you're still you know, the point of meditation is to observe, but not react, right? So you still hear that bird outside your window, you just continue to focus on what you're focusing, you still feel your ass on the chair, but you're focusing on what you're focusing on in, um, in, in the, the meditation tank, all that's gone. So the way I look at it is that if you've ever had like an old shitty computer that you need to upgrade, as soon as you open two or three things on it at once, it gets bogged down. But if you're just running one thing, it's still pretty quick. So what happens in the, in the isolation tank is all the other processes that your brains normally go through just completely shut off. So you're, it's all the bandwidth is freed up to focus on whatever you're focusing on, which there's nothing there. So I love it as a way f- to solve problems. If I have something that I really need to think about, and it's all, it's all thought work, I'll go into the tank, I'll book an hour, and I'll just stay in there. Um, it can get pretty trippy. So just, you know, it's one of those things that just get ready, just open the door and leave if you, if you need to. But I always explain my first visit was like, um, it felt like those windy toys you got at McDonald's back in the day, you'd wind it up and you'd let it go and it would dance. But it, as a kid, of course, you're winding it to the point that it almost breaks and you put it down. The thing just freaks out for a couple <laughs> seconds. Yes. And then that's what I thought of med- med- or these flotation tanks that my brain just went, here you go. So it felt like I was watching a movie on my life stacked on top of watching another movie stacked on top of watching another movie. So it was almost like my brain was just dumping information out. Um, and then after probably the third or fourth visit, it, it became the best place to think because you're absolutely distraction free. You're, you're, you're not even thinking about, you know, the, that pain in the back that you normally have because you're weightless. So it's a way that you can focus all of your brain power on one thing. And then I get out and I've got my iPad with the little keyboard attached to it. And I just write and I write for, um, you know, five minutes or so straight, just everything that came out at that time. And some of my best algorithms and uh, some of my best business ideas and, and things like video ideas and things like this have come out of that state, which is really just, just think of meditation times like a hundred, right? It's just, it's meditation where you're physically locked away and no one can bug you and nothing can bug you. Um, and then it's, you know, you, you get this kind of uh, post float high almost where it's just, you're so calm and you're so relaxed and um, you know, at, at the very least floating in that much Epsom salt is just good for your body. 
um, just to, to, to recover everything. So I love them. I haven't been since COVID. I'm, I'm waiting for the place to open back up and I can't wait to get back to it. So do you, when you go into it, do you go in with a, a particular problem you're looking to solve or do you just, your brain knows the problems I've, I've found it, you know, I do meditation. I also run and I've mm-hmm. always just found it interesting. I don't necessarily go with like, I found that a lot of times on a run, I'll solve a problem I had yesterday. We you know, I'll just be out there. Like I'm hitting mile five or six. And then all of a sudden I have, the, I go, wow, I, I solved that problem that I had like, you know, a day or two ago. Do you go, but I necessarily, I wasn't always necessarily expecting to solve that problem or trying to solve that problem. It just, it finally comes to me. Do you go in to these isolation tanks with a, with a, you know, I guess some problems to solve or you just go in to zero out and see what happens? A bit of both. You know, if, if okay. I have, um, I usually just go in as almost the, the same as a daily meditation. It's like a maintenance thing, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you just want to, you know, keep your brain healthy. You want to keep it thinking. You want to keep it moving. Um, but every now and then if I do have, I've got something that I, I, it's like when you almost have a thought on the tip of your tongue, right? Like sometimes you've got that thing that you want to say and you just got to figure out how to say it. And the same as I, maybe I'm working on a trading strategy and I'm like, I know I've got something here. I just, I just need to, to focus and do nothing else. I'll go in, you know, extra times just to focus on that. But usually it's just to go in and I just want to sit back and I want to let whatever happens, happens. Sometimes I'm in there for the full hour or so I book. Uh, there's one time I went in and basically because you're weightless and everything is the same temperature, your body doesn't know which way is up anymore because it's got no point of reference. Mm-hmm. So it's like you don't – I thought I was doing somersaults and I <laughs> had my eyes open, but it's pure dark. And I'm looking around, all I saw was eyes. So I just got out. I'm like, that's it. That's enough. I'm done. Um, so <laughs> wow. sometimes it's, it's purposeful. Sometimes it's just maintenance. And sometimes it's just to, to decompress. You know, if I've had a, a you know, it, trading is hard, right? If I've had, you know, say I've had a couple of days where all of my algorithms don't perform and everything's just going bad. And, and I, I feel the urge that people have to kind of step in and change things and, and do things. I will just go there and say, okay, let's just kind of recenter ourselves, bring ourselves back to, back to basics. But I kind of, I use it for everything. Again, I'm, I'm sad that I haven't been able to, to go as much as I can. Just out of curiosity. So I, I've never been in a deprivation tank or this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So how big are these? And then you said it's kind of completely dark and you know, quiet and the temperature. So how, how do you know how to get out if you can't see anything? I guess that would be my, Oh, good question. They, they have people like around <laughs> you. Like if I could just yell for help or something or. Nope. Can't, can't, couldn't, couldn't hear you if you yell and you're not. So you walk into a room and the room is all yours and then you go into a tank. So it's like double isolated. Cause you know, in that room, you got it. You're not wearing anything when you're in there, right? You're not wearing, if you're wearing a bathing suit, you would notice that you're so completely naked uh, in there. There's a shower in there too, to get all the salt off you when you're done. Um, but they're, if I really stretch, I'm a little over six feet tall. If I really, really stretch, I can barely touch the side. Um, so seven feet, maybe give or take wide and then maybe seven, eight feet deep and then five feet from the floor to the ceiling. But because you're not spinning around, I know that the door is usually right above your head. So I know that if I push that way, eventually I'll, I'll get to something. I hope you can usually get out, but, 
but yeah, you can't, you can't hear anything. You can't do anything. You can't call for help really. But what they do to tell you your time's done is there's a speaker in the bottom. So at some point, uh, you know, my place anyway, it's a bit of, you know, soothing music starts playing to say, Hey, your time's up and get out. Uh, but until then you got nothing. You just gotta, you gotta hope that reality's still there when you get back kind of thing. Well, I, I'm looking forward to it even more now. Once, uh, once COVID is over, I'm able to get to it. I think I, I even saw that another one recently opened. I don't know if I've searched it or not, but they've been advertising to me already. So mm-hmm. I, I'll, I will definitely check that out. I definitely look forward to that. So thank you for going into a little more detail about it. I really appreciate no, that. No problem. Love them. Well, Brian, if you didn't have anything else, and um, I think we're going to get to our final segment here which is the random question of the day. And I know, I feel like we bounced all over anyways, but um, we always, Brian always brings a question in and he asked me and our guest and I don't get to hear it ahead of time or anything. He's got a hell of a grin there. So (laughs) (laughs) Michael actually kind of inadvertently took my question about video games in the markets. I'm going to add a couple of them on the fly, but I'll I'll just say, since you're from Canada and there's a lot of, you know, Robin Hood-esque traders, I'm assuming, that are listening to this kind of podcast that we have. Um, you know, a lot of the, I guess, popular stocks that, have, you know, people my age like to trade are these marijuana stocks. And, you know, mm-hmm. we know marijuana is legal in Canada. And I, and I know Michael has a marijuana stock trading story for sure. But I guess, do you have any opinions on where that market's going? Or is that an investment opportunity? I mean, it's fine if you don't, but I'm just kind of curious. A Canadian's take on the marijuana industry. I... Uh... Sad, sadly, all, all the stories that I've heard from friends and everything are all bad. Um, what I, so what I will say is it's one of those things, like most things, where all of the hype happened first, right? All the hype happened before the legalization. Excuse me. All the, all the hype happened before the legalization, and then everything kind of tanked from there. There was one stock I was watching from a technical point of view, uh, ACB, I think, um, was pulling back pretty harshly and getting to a level that I was interested in, but really the, you know, there's obviously stories of, of the marijuana themselves. I, I love the stories of right, people who'd never done it throughout their entire life. And now it's legal and they feel free to let loose. And they're doing that. It's like the age of 60. Um, I, I know a couple of my friends, parents gotten in real trouble, buddy of mine got a call one night of, you know, I know you've done this before and I haven't, uh, am I going to be okay? Is everything, is everything fine? And it's like, yes, it's, it, it's fine. And then, um, so it, it's, but it was, it was one of the biggest non-events here, actually. Um, you know, they, they opened it up and everything was legal and they lined up around the block. Uh, nothing was able to be purchased. The only thing that really stood out for me from an investment point of view that really got me interested is the thing that ran out across Canada and ran out for like six months had no THC. It was all the CBD uh, derivatives. And, and, and I was trying to get some because again, I just think it's good for joints and, and all of this, um, uh, the, the joints in your body, not the ones that you would. You know, <laughs> um, yes, thank you. Thank you for specifying. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I started talking to the guy that was working there. I was like, I can't find any CBD oil for the life of me. Cause I was trying to get it for me and some, you know, my parents and, and things like this, just to, to see if it, if it helped out some problems I had. And he said, you'd be shocked. There is a, like a gaggle of old women who know when we get restocked on CBD 
and they're all lined up out there and they buy what's near the legal limit every time. And that really got me thinking of, um, cause the whole THC thing, the stigma is still here, right? The stigma of, you know, if you smoke weed, you're lazy and blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and that, but the CBD thing lifted like right away. And to this day, there's still times you go to get CBD and CBD related products and they're all gone. So it made me think of um, those particular companies and those particular industries that seems to be the way to go. And then the question I think is when are the larger companies? So, you know, America has 10 times the population of Canada. I think China has probably 10 times the population of you guys. I think the focus is, not when are these guys going to legalize the THC aspects, but when are they going to legalize the CBD aspects and who's going to do the best? Because the way China usually works is if they, for example, find the value in CBD and want to legalize it, they are either going to buy an American company that does a good job doing it, or they're just going to steal that, that their tech. It's, it's one of those two things. So that's, from an investment side of thing, and I don't do a lot of it, that's where I'm thinking. It's not the, you know, I don't want to focus on the uh, the THC side of things because that's fun and I, I partake and it, it helps sleep and, and a lot of other medical benefits as well. But it's the CBD side of thing that the the stigma is just gone. Um, and, and it was that stigma that I think would hold back the industry. So if I was an investor and I was looking at it, I would fi- find a stock um, that not a lot of people have heard of, but has some method to extract or to, to implement or something CBD in a way that no one else is. And I think that's going to be the, the, the star, but you know, no, no dog in that fight. Sure. Um, I'm, I'll say, I don't have a dog in the, in the weed fight either. I do think that it's, you know, ridiculous that we outlawed this plant for, you know, for so many decades here in the States and everywhere else, you know, around the globe is just outlawed where there's obviously there has been significant medical benefits proven, you know, um, I know I had a, a relative that had cancer and was on when, when she was dying, you know, you going through chemo and everything else. They, you know, they couldn't, the doctor, I think the doctor actually said to her or said to her, uh, to, to one of the people, I'm not going to get too much detail, keep everything a little bit secret here, but they mm-hmm. said, well, there's something that can help her right now, but I can't prescribe it. You know, and we live in North Carolina and he goes, Oh, I know exactly what you're telling me to do. So he went and he found yeah, some weed and got her, you know, gave her a little one hitter. So, and I think he left her with the one hitter and like a couple bags of cookies and some sandwiches and everything. And mm-hmm. told her later in the day and said, well, did you try the one hitter out? Did you feel anything? Yeah. Yeah. I tried it out. And you know, I don't, I don't know if I feel anything. It's like, well, have you eaten anything? Well, I ate two bags of cookies and three of the sandwiches. So, <laughs> yeah. so there was like, there was obvious, it was obvious benefit there for somebody that didn't have an appetite at all prior mm-hmm. to that. Um, you know, as a veteran, I've had friends that um, have, you know, had a rough time with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD and, and marijuana has helped them with that. So you know, I just think it's tough to always say that, oh, this thing, you know, we, we prescribe opioids like it's going out of style, um, which lead to heroin addiction and, and all these other terrible things. But for some reason, you know, we don't want to we don't want to let people get high and sit around and eat Doritos. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny because I remember when I was talking to I have a couple um couple friends that are RCMP. So it's our, we have a local police service and then we have the nationwide 
police service, which I think is similar to, to you guys, maybe like FBI or, or whatever mm-hmm. is the, the federal side of it. And um, I asked them before, you know, when the legalization was announced, but it hadn't been implemented yet. It's like, what do you guys think? And uh, one of them was like, I, I'm really bummed. And I'm like, oh, shit, why? And he's like, I loved responding to the weed calls. He's like, if I go to a call of, you know, there's a party and everyone's drunk. He's like, I don't know if the guy's like beating his wife or if he's going to attack me or something. But he's like, we would as cops race to the weed calls. The, oh, I smell smoke. And these guys are in the basement. They're definitely smoking weeds. And be like, I'd love to waste of my eight hour shift, you know, two hours having that call because I know I'm going to go in. No one's going to shoot me. I know it's going to be a bunch of kids like, <laughs> playing Mario Kart on the N64 that they found in their basement and think it's the coolest thing ever. So it, it, it was ridiculous to me as well. Cause when you hear that from, you know, a police officer who's like, I love the calls because I just felt so safe. I'm like, so the thing that's <laughs> legal, if you get a call to go to, you're worried about, and then the thing that's illegal, he's like, yeah. So he's like, that's why we're bummed is because that was like, you know, that was like, you, you know, you're working at, at McDonald's and you start dicking off in the back room because no one's around. If I go to a weed call, that's just me dicking off because I'm not going to arrest the guys or anything like that. I'm just going to, don't you do that and shake my finger and, and walk off. But it's, you know, it's ridiculous that it's like that. I'm glad the world's changing. I do think there's an industry that's going to come of it. Unfortunately, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm big into crypto. I, I manage a couple crypto firms and, and then consult with them. I think it's the same as crypto where everyone was hoping that the little guy would win. And I don't think it's going to be like that. I think it's going to be the big guy is going to eat the little guy and, and convert it. So if you're a company that um, you know has a, a better process or you have better firms or something like this, I don't think you're going to get the, the, Amazon of weed. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is you're going to get these small companies that end up doing good and they're going to get bought out by Amazon. So what I think you got to look for is, you know, and again, a lot of people get bummed when I say that because they want, you know, this, this little industry to turn into a massive industry and make a bunch of money. But I think it's going to be kind of the same as normal where, you know, things are, it's going to get normalized. You're going to walk in. I would be shocked if you're not seeing Flintstone vitamins with CBD in them in 10 years, whoever makes that. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, do you, do you have a take on this? No, I, I think you guys hit all the great points. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not really super invested into like the, the, this industry, but I, when I looked at some of the charts, it looks like, you know, it looked like it, kind of like the crypto craze. A lot of them had really high valuations a few years ago. Now they've, some of them really tanked. It's really hard. It seems like to predict the winner, but like you're saying about the overall market size and the trends, you know, I think, you know, one point you said about China, we're in North Carolina, so we're a tobacco state, and I work for mm-hmm. the Uni- North Carolina State University, and, you know, there's still hemp research, and we know tobacco farmers, but one of the interesting statistics I like to tell people is, like, there are more smokers in China than there are people in the United States, just to give you a size of the wow. industry, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, so there's companies like that Ultra have huge stakes in, you know, marijuana companies. So I, I think you're right. I, I don't know who the winner is going to be, but I, I'm really curious to see how that industry grows over time. And I think Michael made a good point that I'm 100% in agreeance, actually, where I don't think there's necessarily going to be this little tiny penny stock that becomes the next Amazon because they're not writing the rules. You know, there's the, the regulators and the way our government works is, you know, it basically panders to the big companies, you know, the people that can afford lobbying and everything else. They're the ones that are going to end up writing the rules. We've already seen that. You know, we have 
I don't even know how many states have legalized it. We have several states that have legalized it recreational here in the states, and mm-hmm. there's several more about to here in November, most likely. Um, you know, they've got it on their ballots, but all of them have seen these issues where the basically the little guy, the, the, the cards and the deck has been stacked against the little guy because the big guys are the ones writing the laws. They're the ones with the lobbying campaigns and everything else that can, that can really influence the, uh, the big overall aspects of it. So, yeah. Well, and they're, they're established and they got money. Like, you know, Apple's got an insane amount of cash, right? Yeah. So if they decided they're going to, you know, the next iWeed or whatever, they could, they could probably buy the entire industry. So it's the same thing. I think you're right with the tobacco growers. I would be shocked if you don't see a handful of tobacco growers buy a handful of weed stocks and just say, okay, now that we bought the resources and we bought the intelligence and we bought the people, take these and convert them in these tobacco farms and weed farms or take these. Right. So I think it's going to be kind of more the same and you're right. It's going to, you know, tinfoil hat time. I think the legalization <laughs> in America is really going to push through when these big companies are ready to profit off it. Right. So it's going to take them a couple of years to change everything over and ramp everything up. And then they're going to kind of give a wink and a nudge to your government and say, okay, we're ready to make a couple billion dollars you know, get it going. And then all of a sudden it'll be legal and it'll be the big companies that, that win again, sadly. But and we, we've traders, already seen that yeah. to an extent. I mean, John Boehner, our former speaker of the house who was anti-weed, anti-drug for the longest time retired. And within six months was, a you know, was consulting for a weed company. So yeah, 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 you're, you're, you're exactly right. There's only there's only one green that matters in the end, exactly. the end of the day, right? That's all that that's what talks for sure. Well, great. Um, well, I I think we've we've really come, uh, you know, we've had a lot of topics today. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Michael. I really appreciate you coming on today. This has been fantastic, Brian. Do you have anything else for him? Well, well, I always think we you always ask you know what the contact information, so how we get a oh, hold yes. of Michael. So maybe Michael, you could just tell us you know how, what would be the best way to get a hold of you, and maybe some information on your you know if you have a social media presence and your YouTube things like that. And we can put that yeah. in the show notes too. Okay, so yeah, the um, YouTube and Twitter are both Bonpara B O N P A R A. Um, I do basically on YouTube, you'll find uh, live trading. I do a lot of where. I'll take a swing trade, for example, that I took and I'll just cut every time I had to do anything with the swing trade and, and give you my thought process behind it. A general tips for algo trading, that type of thing. Uh, one series that's a lot of fun that we're doing is uh, taking my fiance, who's never traded before in her life and teaching her how to trade. So that's a great, if you're really looking to get into it, like we start with what is stock because she you know, generally hadn't done any of this before. So we had to, we had to go through that. Um, and then on Twitter, it's going to be charts and, and pictures of my dog. That'll be about it. But uh, <laughs> really, I, I'm not I'm not selling anything. I am affiliate with Trade Ideas. So if you're interested in the program, you click on any of the links that I produce. It it, it definitely I don't I like to be honest about that. It does uh, provide a commission, but I for now anyway, I don't have any courses or any anything like that to sell you. Everything I do is just here. It's free. Uh, hopefully, learn something. If I do a course later. Or something, maybe I've I've gotten enough loyalty that 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 uh, that reduces some revenue. But it's really just a place for free education for now. Well, perfect. Thanks again for coming on. We'll we'll post all of that in the show notes along along with uh, some of the books and uh, movies that we talked about. 
and even the meditation uh, headspace and calm will post links to that as well. All of that will be in the cool. show notes. So awesome. Michael, thank you so much again for coming on today. Been, been a real pleasure. Oh, it was great. I got to drink beer and sit and not do yard work. So I'm, I'm happy about that. That's for sure. All righty. Well, well, thank you all for listening. This is uh, Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael.